I was thinking about this this past week. Where are the places that you wait the most? As you think about like waiting, like having to wait, where do you wait? Anybody raise your hand, tell me where you wait. Doctor's office. You're always waiting at the doctor's office. Show, show up for your 2 o'clock appointment that you go in at 2.15, 2.20. Right, Dr. Ben? All right. Where else do you wait? DMV. Who said DMV? All right. Anywhere else? Social Security. Okay. Starbucks. Yes, yes. I, I read an article about waiting at the DMV and how... Sometimes the DNV can be a, a slow place. And so it was this idea. My, my license is due to renew, so I thought this is a good thing for me to do. So I, I looked up this article about how to kill time waiting at the DMV. All right? First suggestion was to read a book. You know, that makes sense. You know, read a book. Um, play on your phone. I mean, we, we do that anyways. Um, people watch. That's a fun one. And then it starts getting... Interesting. Ask like you're in prison. What are you in here for? You'll hear all, you'll hear all sorts of stories like, I lost my license. I'm getting a divorce. Um, you might even hear a story about a guy who's temporarily homeless, whose wallet was stolen, stolen sleeping by the mall. Not experienced, but you know. Uh, they said, uh, to kill time while you're waiting at the DMV, smudge the lenses on the eye test machine. Sounds like fun. Walk into the DMV and wave a blind man's cane and ask where to get your license renewed at. Uh, when they call your number, shout, I win! Okay. Go to the men's room and memorize the graffiti tags and use that as your signature. There we go. And the last one was to kill time waiting at the DMV. Hand out fake numbers at the door. <laughs> Anybody enjoy my sense of humor? I hope somebody does. If you have a Bible, I'm going to invite you to turn to uh, the book of First Peter. Uh, we've been in a series uh, through First Peter, going through at a very fast pace, uh, like a cheetah, and uh, we're going to be in First Peter chapter four today. And I've got good news for you and bad news. Good news is this: Jesus is returning. Bad news is this. I have no clue when that's going to happen. And so we are in this thing where we're in this process of waiting. We know Jesus is going to return, but we don't know when. Unfortunately, God put me on the welcoming crew and not the planning committee. So I don't have the secret details of when this is going to happen. And so 1 Peter chapter 4, Peter's going to deal with this idea about Jesus is going to return, but we don't know when. And so we have this, this time in the meantime. Like, what are we supposed to do in the meantime while we are waiting? So if you have a Bible, 1 Peter chapter 4, uh, the words will also be on the screen behind me. And I'm going to invite you to stand with me as I read through uh, our text today. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. And here's what Peter would say to us today. He says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, an order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. 
To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for this opportunity to come and just hear your word today. God, we're not here coming to hear a pastor tell us how we're supposed to live, but God, this is your word speaking today. And God, as you speak to us just about end times, uh, about how we are to live in the meantime, God, I pray that you would give us direction. God, I pray to help us to understand that all the things that we worry and stress and we have anxiety over in this world, that God, you say there's something greater for us. And I pray, God, that we would have that desire for home, to know that, Christ, you are going to come back and take us to where we belong. And just pray that you would help us to lead in now to hear your word, that you would uh, speak to every one of us in here today. That, God, you would draw us deeper in love with you. And we ask this in your holy and precious name. Amen. You can go ahead and be seated. So Peter starts out and he says that phrase. He says, the end of all things is at hand. And the question that naturally comes is, what does exactly that mean? Because we live, we live in kind of a society that loves thinking about end times. This is, why, um, this is why zombies are so popular in today's day, right? We have these movies and these TV shows about the zombie apocalypse coming. And we get into that. Um, that's why you watch movies. You watch movies coming out of Hollywood that are all about the end times. Um, I'm thinking the two movies that I can think about, this will tell you a little bit about me. I Am Legend with Will Smith and Wally. Okay, those are the closest I can come up with with end times movies because number one, I'm a Will Smith fan. Number two, I have five kids. So we watch a lot of kids' movies. So maybe you've got a better end times movie, but we've watched those movies. We're curious about the end times. In fact, you start looking at some of the issues of our day, we think global warming. Like, what happens with global warming? What happens if we run out of resources? It's going to mean the end of the world. So, so end times things is something that, that we're thinking about, people talk about. There's conversations around. And Peter, remember who the people he's writing to. He's writing to encourage people who are in the middle of suffering. And he's writing them, and this is supposed to be an encouragement to them. Listen, guys, the end is at hand. The, N- the NIV version, it says the end is near. Okay, this was meant to be good news, encouragement to people who are going through a hard time. Hey, there's good news. The end is near. Jesus is going to return. But here's a little bit of the elephant in the room. Peter wrote this book 2,000 years ago. And here we are today we're still preaching about that same thing that he said 2,000 years ago. The end, uh, the, the end is near. So we have to wonder, well, maybe, maybe Peter, maybe he doesn't really know what he's talking about. Or maybe they have a different idea of what near means. Because obviously 2,000 years later, my view of near is not 2,000 years later. And so uh, we need to understand that he had a different understanding when he said uh, the end of all things is at hand or the end of all things is near. In fact, some people... They try and predict uh, when Christ will return. They'll try and predict, hey, this is when Christ is going to return. There's a guy by the name of Harold Camping, um, a weird guy. Or maybe you can think about guys that you've seen on TV or whatever, and they've got the sandwich board, and they're saying, repent, Christ is coming back, and this is the day. But we don't know when Christ is going to return. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, he says, concerning the day and hour, nobody knows, not even the angels, nor the Son, but the Father only. So even Jesus doesn't know when this is going to, to come. And so when Peter writes and says, the end is at hand, he's, the end is, he's not saying the end is going to happen today. In fact, when you look at the big picture of Scripture, 
You look at the Bible from the beginning to the end. There's, there's four quarters. There's four acts. There's four stories that you'll see playing out throughout Scripture. You see the creation of man, the creation of the world. You see the fall of man. And then you see redemption. And the fourth story, the fourth act, the fourth quarter is uh, restoration. And so when Peter is writing to say the end is at hand, he's kind of saying, hey, listen, we're moving into the fourth quarter now. Like those other things, all the major things that God is going to do for redemption, they've occurred. And now we're going into the the, the last phase, the last quarter, the, the last step before the return of Christ. In fact, I was thinking about it like this. When I was a kid, my family used to drive to um, uh, ocean shores. We used to go to the beach of ocean shores. And so it was funny because as a kid, as you're driving to the beach, uh, you, you, your parents are driving and you're kind of watching everything around you. And you know, once you kind of turn onto this little two-lane highway, you know it's going to go for a little while. You're kind of watching because you want to see the ocean. You want to be the first person to see the beach. And so every hill that you come up, you're like, oh, am I going to see it over the hill? Oh, there's another hill. And you take a turn. You're like, oh, it's going to come around the turn. There's a, no, no, the beach isn't there yet. And it's kind of this idea that uh, we don't know exactly how long it's going to be, but we know that each hill brings a little bit more excitement because we know, man, that thing we're waiting for is, is right around the corner. And when Peter says the end is at hand, it's kind of like this. We're on that last road. Any day it could be uh, that, that Jesus is going to return on the other side of this hill. It might be a few days, it might be a few years, it might be a thousand years. We don't really know, but the idea is we are on that last road. We're on our way to Jesus coming back to restore all things. In fact, I imagine when Peter first wrote this, I imagine people were a little bit confused. The end of all, the end is at hand. Because Peter wrote wrote a second book. He wrote a second book, and he really, he's really good with the names of his books. The second book is called Second Peter. And Addressing people who didn't quite understand what he said about the end of all things is at hand is he wrote to in second Peter chapter three. He said, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. He says in verse nine, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. I mean, the Lord is not slow to return like he said he was going to. The Lord is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. See, the reason that Christ is being patient, the reason that he is, is waiting, because every day that Christ waits to return, another rebel who is bound for hell has a chance to become a son or daughter of the king that is bound for eternity in heaven. And that is good news. I know we, we look around at all the injustices in our world. We look at all the hard things happening in our world. We think about catastrophic events. We think about what's happening in Houston in the last week. Think about all the travesty that's happening in Houston. And naturally, we want to pray, Lord, come quickly. Lord, come quickly just to fix all that's gone wrong. We look at our community. We look at all the problems in our community. Uh, the violence has been something that just continues to increase in our community in the last year. And we think, Lord, Lord, would you just come quickly? We think about hardships that we might face in our own personal lives. Difficult situations. Some of us in here, you are in the middle of incredible hardships. You've got heartaches going all around you. And naturally the prayer is, Lord, would you come quickly? Would you come and fix all that's gone wrong? Would you come and restore all things? See, this is part of living in a a fallen world. 
That for the last 2,000 years, people have prayed, God, would you come quickly? Would you restore all things? Would you make all things right? But if I'm just going to be honest with you, I'm not ready for Christ to return. Because I have friends and family that have not yet trusted Jesus as their Savior. And if Jesus comes back today and they haven't trusted Christ as their Savior, they're going to be bound for eternity in hell. And that is the truth. In fact, I'm glad that God didn't answer uh, the prayers of people who prayed before my junior year of high school. Because entering my junior year of high school, I was a religious kid. I was a nice kid. But I was a rebel who had not yet surrendered my life to Jesus Christ. And I would have been bound for hell if Christ would have returned at that moment. See, because Jesus delays his return, because Jesus allows sin to continue to reign on the earth, there are people like me and people like some of you that have had the opportunity now to step over the line to faith in Jesus Christ, become a son and daughter, to have our eternity changed from, from hell to heaven. And listen, if you are here today and you're, you've been hanging around Christianity, you've been trying to figure this out, trying to think, okay, this Christianity thing, it makes sense, but you haven't yet given your life over to Christ. Listen, I want you to understand that when he returns, that offer to forgive your sins, to bring you into God's family, to change your life, listen, when he comes, that offers off the table. There is no second chance. The book of Hebrews says, it's appointed unto men once to die, and after that, there's the judgment. And this is the grace of God as to why he is waiting so that more people that you and I love and care about have the opportunity to hear the gospel, to have their eternity changed from the pits of hell to being with you and with Christ in eternity in heaven. So the question is, are we living in the end times? Yes, we are. It's near. We don't know when. It might be a couple days. might be a couple years. might be another thousand years. But we are in the end times. See, I think the problem is this. The problem is not that people don't believe in God or people don't believe in eternity. The problem is we don't think enough about God. We don't think enough about eternity. And see, if you and I would just get in the habit of closing our eyes... Focusing on Christ. Focusing on his return. Man, I'd imagine that the things that we're obsessed and worried about really are not that insignificant and important anymore. I mean, if we're, we're understanding that Christ could return at any moment, that he could come any time, think about that, that bank statement we're so worried about. And isn't that meaningless? Think about how many likes we get on Instagram. Really, that's insignificant in the grand scheme of things. Thinking about, well, what about the spot on the orchard? I want to make sure I rise up and I, and I get my name out there. It's really meaningless in compared to the fact that Christ could return at any moment. And so here's what Pete's doing. He's saying, listen, guys, the end is at hand. Christ could return at any moment. And here's what he's going to say. In that meantime... In that time between right now when we know that Christ could return and when he actually does, he's going to say, don't focus on all those other things. Don't focus on your bank account and, and, and how many likes you got on Instagram and your, your position in the orchard. Don't focus on that. He's going to say, in the meantime, here's where you need to invest your life. Here's what we need to do in the meantime while we are waiting. 
He's going to give us four things that we're going to unpack and understand what it means for Peter telling us this is what we're to, how we're to live in the meantime. First thing he's going to say, he's going to say we need to be alert and sober so that we can pray. Verse 7 starts out, he says, The end of all things at hands, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. See, the reason that we are to be self-controlled and sober-minded is because somehow that has an impact on our prayer life. Now, usually when we, in our day, we read that word sober and we think it's the opposite of what? Being drunk. We think, well, it's the opposite of being drunk. But when Peter writes that word sober-minded, it means more than that. It means to be, have a calm and collected spirit. It means to think accurately. Now, obviously, if you're drunk, you're not going to be able to think very clearly and accurately. But the whole idea when he says be sober-minded is that we are to be cautious. We're to have control of our mind. We're to be careful. We are to be on alert. And what's interesting is you think about the guy who wrote this. Peter's the guy. You remember the story from the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus, the the, the night he's going to be betrayed, he wants to go and pray and spend time with the Father. And so he calls his closest friends. He calls Peter and James and John. He says, hey guys, come with me to the garden. You guys stay here and pray. And I'm going to go a little further and pray. Remember what happened? Three times, Jesus came back and the disciples, they weren't alert. They weren't sober. They'd fallen asleep. And so here, Peter, you got to imagine, he's thinking about that. He's thinking about, man, man, I blew this once. And he's telling us, listen, we need to be alert and sober-minded. I think the reason why he's saying we need to be alert and sober-minded is because we need to recognize that we are in a battle. I mean, you think about your life, you think about what's going on in your situation. You might think the biggest battle you have is kind of with our, our society and our culture telling you you can't live out the way, your faith the way you want. You might think the biggest problem in your life is, is politically, all the political things that we've got going on. Uh, maybe you think it's the economy and it's your job. Maybe it's your coworker who mistreats you. Maybe it's that, that family member or, or that person who's trying to tear apart your reputation. Uh, maybe it's your neighbor who's trying to put his power line in a place he shouldn't put it. Whatever it is, you might have this idea of something going on in your life and you think, this is my battle. But Peter's gonna, Peter understands something different. Because Satan uses all of those things to try and take over our soul. To steal our peace, to steal our, our joy and, and, our, and our faith and our hope. The greatest struggle that any of us are going to battle on this earth is for our soul. In fact, this is what Ephesians says in chapter 6. It says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the, the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. We are in a battle for our souls. And listen, we deal with these little battles, these little skirmishes, dealing with our neighbors and dealing with these things. But the real battle is for our soul, is how we're going to allow those things to affect our soul. And Peter says, listen, because we're in a battle, we need to live like we're in wartime. See, if you've been in the military, there's a difference between living in a war zone and being on leave. In a war zone... Even when things seem calm and quiet, you have to be on alert. You've got to be ready. As opposed to being on leave, where it's a safer place. You don't have to be as, as alert. 
In fact, I, I think it's important for him to recognize. He's saying, hey, we need to be alert because we're in a battle. And he says, uh, uh, so for the, for the sake of your prayers. You know what the greatest weapon in our spiritual battle is? Actually, Ephesians 6 gives us two weapons. You think about the armor of God. He says the word of God and prayer. Those are the two weapons that we have to fight the battle for our soul. And the question I want to, again, as I'm reading, I'm asking questions to myself. Why does he connect being alert and being sober-minded for the sake of our prayers? How does being alert, how does being sober-minded affect our prayers? Most of us, most of us don't walk around our house on alert. Like most of us, we aren't, you know, watching things to see what's going wrong. I mean, we're, it's our house. We're kind of casual. We're lax. In fact, 10 years ago, uh, my wife and I, we were, you know, lived in a nice little neighborhood. And, and so we were kind of lax. And I had this car and I left my car parked on the road one day. And I thought nothing of it. We're a nice neighborhood. We're lax. Well, it just so happened that inside the glove compartment of my car, there was the garage door opener. And so in the middle of the night, somebody broke into my car. They, they found the garage door opener, and they got into our garage. I'm like, okay. Um, but the problem was, is, is the other car, my wife's car, was in the garage. And I had left my keys in her car. And so not only did they break into the garage, they took the keys, they started the car, and they took the car. And, and I have to be honest, like, like, when something happens like this, when you go into a dangerous situation, man, you, your alert goes up really fast. You become on high alert. You notice all the little things. And so the night after this happened, we're on high alert. We're kind of watching everything. We're making sure all the lights work. And, and that night, I'm in bed, and I hear a noise outside. I don't know what, it was probably a chipmunk. I don't know what it was. But I heard a little noise, and I got out of bed, and I reached into my, my, my sock drawer, and I pulled up my BB gun, because that's all I had, because that's what real men have, is a BB gun. And I run outside. Now, mind you, I'm in my boxer shorts, okay? I run outside with my BB gun. I'm like, I'm here. Where are you at, man? Because I was convinced someone was outside. I'm hot. I'm on alert. Every little thing I'm beginning to notice. (laughs) I hate to give you that visual, but there you go. This is what it means for us to be self-controlled, to be alert, to be sober is that we have our guard up and we catch things on the front end. We notice the little things that are out of place before they become big things. In fact, when it comes to prayer, when we are alert, when we are sober-minded, we, we start doing something called front-end praying. Where we pray for things before they fall apart. We notice things that are going wrong before it blows up. Because most of the time, what we do is we start praying for things after they've blown up. In fact, as a pastor, oftentimes I get this call. I get this call, hey, pastor, can I talk with you? And he said, pastor, would you pray for me? My marriage is falling apart. I'm like, oh, tell me what happened. Well, my wife's been really mad at me for a while, and she served me the divorce papers, and she moved out. Would you pray for me? And I'm like, man, it's a little late to be praying for I wish you would have come and talked to me a long time ago. We could have been praying about this before. Somebody says, hey, you know, would you pray for me? You know, the biopsy came back, and I had a bad report. And I'm like, man, I wish we could have prayed about this before the biopsy came back with a bad report. Oh, you know, would you pray for me uh, for my job? Yeah, what's going on with your job? Well, I got fired a week ago. Like, man, I wish you would have. I think this is a wrong time for us to start praying about this. This should be something we pray about sooner. 
And see, this is what it means for us to be alert and sober-minded. As we begin to notice things out of place, we begin to notice when things go wrong before it blows up, before the crap hits the fan. And we get God's involvement in it before that point. You know, I'll be honest, I think one of the reasons why we lack front-end prayer is because we lack community. We lack community. This is why restoration, this is for four years we have prioritized life groups in our church. People being in community with one another. Where we commit to knowing other people, to growing together, to have a safe environment where we can be vulnerable. We don't have to worry about what other people think about you. Because when you have a group of people like that, when you're in community with people that you trust, you know what happens? You have someone that you can trust when things start going bad at work. You have someone that you can trust when things aren't going well at home. And you can say, hey, listen, man, would you, I know you love me. Would you pray for me over this area? Because I feel like things are not going where they should be. Before the marriage falls apart, hey, we're going through a rough season. Would you pray for us? You see, you see this front end, this idea about front end praying? About how we need to pray for things before they fall apart. And how when you're in community, you have people that you love and trust and can say, hey, listen. I'm not worried about how you're going to judge me, but I just want you to know this is where I'm at. Would you pray with me through this? Would you work with me through this? In fact, man, Sunday's just not enough. Sunday mornings are not enough in church. You've got to be in community with other people. Because that's where that front end praying is going to be used to the best ability. When you've got people who are for you, who are on your side, that you can trust Hey, listen, this is where things are going with my kids. We're struggling. I see my kid doing some dumb things. You know what? Let's be praying for that before that falls apart, right? That's why he says, be alert. Be sober-minded. Be self-controlled. Notice the things that go wrong so that you can pray for them for the sake of your prayers. Second thing that Peter's going to teach us to do, uh, living in the meantime, is to love each other deeply. He says in verse 8, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Now, when Peter tells us to love one another earnestly, this is beyond our love cliches. You know, we think about those cliches. You know, I love, I love my wife. I love my baby. I love my biscuits dipped in gravy. Love is deeper than that. When he says to love one another earnestly, he means going deeper than that. Because if we're in a super, if we're in a spiritual battle, love that is superficial doesn't really mean anything. This is where love has to have actions. Love has to have feet. So that's where he says love one another earnestly. He means to love deeply. Loving deeply means we do the loving thing even when we don't want to do it. Because deep love is not easy. So let me give you an illustration of what that looks like. Okay, so my wife has love languages. We all have love languages. Ways that someone will do something that speaks their love to you, speaks a certain way. And my wife, she's got some love languages that are the same as me. And she's got some other strange ones that I'm not sure how they make her feel loved. But she's got some other ones that make her feel loved. And there are times... There are times that my wife wants me to do something that fits her language, that makes her feel loved. And I'm just going to be honest, everything within me doesn't want to do it. Anybody been there? Yeah. 
there are other times where my wife wants me to do something, and, 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 and I'm thinking, man, you're the greatest. I'm so happy to do this for you. I'd love to do that for you. And there are other times where I'm, she wants me to do something, and I want something out of it. So, of course, I'm going to do what she wants me to do because there's a benefit to me at the end. Listen, which of those three scenarios, which of those times am I expressing the greatest love for my wife? When I feel like it, when I least want to do it. Deep love is when you least want to do it. That is the greatest picture of love. I know some of you are saying, well, that's hypocritical. Like, if you don't want to do what you're doing, like, that's hypocritical. That's not loving. Listen, deep love does what we don't want to do. Deep love is not just a feeling. It is an action. In fact, when you're in counseling, it's fun talking to couples because, you know, they'll say, well, well he never does this. And then he's like, okay, I'll do it. And she goes, see, he only does it because I told him to. And I'm like, that's love. Like he's trying to show you. Yes, I love you. And that is what deep love is. Deep love also does not find, does not delight in finding and exposing faults and sins of the other person. This is where he says, love covers a multitude of sins. This doesn't mean that love sweeps sins under the rug. This doesn't mean that love uh, keeps skeletons locked in the closet. Love covering a multitude of sins means sin is acknowledged. And when it's acknowledged, there is grace, there is forgiveness, and then we cover it. We bury it. So it can't be used against the other person. In fact, I had a, um, a buddy of mine talk on the phone the other day. And a buddy of mine, we ended up having a problem a couple years ago. And he had a problem with something I did, and, and uh, we didn't talk about it for the longest time. Until finally he just blew up, and he said, oh, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. Blah, blah, blah. You did this. And it was fun because we talked about it. And this is where love covers a multitude of sins. He says, you know what? He said, man, I held on to that for the longest time. I never told you about it. I'm like, I didn't even know I did it. And this is where love says, hey, this is where I'm hurt. And, and we give the opportunity to f- extend forgiveness. And then when forgiveness is extended, then we just bury it. We don't let it hold each other against each other anymore. My buddy called and said, hey, man, I'm sorry for what happened. He said, man, I, I didn't bring it to your attention. You didn't even know you did it, but I, you, I didn't bring it to your attention. You had no clue what was going on. And this is how love covers a multitude of sins. Peter actually once asked Jesus, he says, Jesus, how many times am I supposed to forgive? Like seven times? Remember how Jesus replied? Seventy times seven. Do that math, Hudson. I don't know. That's a lot. It's a lot. See, kindness, a love of others, man, that is the uh, greatest force to helping people overcome sin. Do you realize that? Kindness and forgiveness and love of others is the greatest force to help them overcome sin. Because when they see how you forgive and how generous and how empathetic you are, man, when you love each other, the power of God wakes people up to sin. In fact, in Romans chapter 2, it says the same thing. It says, the kindness of God leads to repentance. Do you understand that? It is the kindness of God that leads to our repentance. And that when we love one another deeply, listen, that leads to repentance and restoration of relationships so peter says living in the living in the meantime 
Number one, be alert and sober so you can pray. Number two, love one another deeply. Number three, offer hospitality without complaining. Verse 9 says, show hospitality to one another without complaining. The word for hospitality means uh, to be a lover of strangers. It means that we, we care for other people. We help people in need. Now, I know some of you are th- get a little crazy on this. I'm supposed to help the entire world. Listen, you're not called to help the entire world. You're called to help the people who cross your path. The people who come up through your circle of influence. Now, in Peter's day, they didn't have the Holiday Inn. You know, the little slogan, the light is always on. Like, there was no Holiday Inn for someone to stay the night. And so on that day, oftentimes, hospitality meant, hey, I'm going to give you a place to sleep. I'm going to take care of you. Oh, we look, looks a little different today. Hospitality is, are you inviting people into your home? Are you inviting them into your world, into your life? Now, I understand hospitality is a gift. So some of us say, well, I don't have the gift of hospitality, so I don't have to love people like that. I don't have to invite them into my home and have them around me. Listen, Peter is saying, if you are a Christian, you are called to hospitality. There are some who have the gift of it, that excel at it, and that do a great job with it. But every one of us, if you are a Christian, you are called to hospitality, to be a lover of strangers, not just people you like. To be a lover of people. And he says, do so without grumbling, without complaining. Why does he say that? Why does he say, show hospitality to one another without grumbling? See, if you look at the original definition that, that Peter's writing for grumbling, it means to show hospitality without secretly wishing you didn't have to do it. He's saying, don't offer hospitality and complain about it the whole time. Like, I really don't have to have these people over. Like, do it with a genuine heart. Hospitality is something that should overflow out of us loving one another deeply. It should be an overflow of what's gone on into our heart. When you love somebody... You invite them into your home. You invite them into your world. You invite them into your space. Say, man, I value you. Come, be a part of this. Let me me get to know you more. Just practice hospitality because it's the right thing to do. Practice hospitality because we are God's people. Practice hospitality because God has been good through us. Good to us. He's given us a home. He's given us a, a place. And his, his grace should overthrow, overflow from the threshold of our homes. I want to clarify something, though. Okay, hospitality is not the same thing as entertaining. Some of you are great entertainers. Some of you are phenomenal entertainers. But here's what entertaining is. Entertaining waits until the house and the yard are all fixed up. Entertaining is making sure the house is completely clean, the dishes are put away, the the floors are clean, the kids' toys, the kids' bedrooms are all cleaned. Listen, that's not a bad thing. Like, if you're an entertainer, you have an ability to make things look great and make people feel welcome. But if you're an entertainer, if things have to be perfect before you open the door, listen, that you are not offering biblical hospitality. Biblical hospitality is opening the door even when the kids have their toys all over the place. Even when your hair looks like you licked an electric plug. Like that is what biblical hospitality is. Now, if you've got that entertainment site, listen, there's nothing wrong with that. 
But understand, hospitality is serving. Hospitality is I want to serve someone else. It's not about me. It's not what they think about me. It's not what they think about my house. It is me serving another person. In fact, I'm going to step out on a limb here and say, as I look at Restoration Church, I look at where we are. You know, probably one of the greatest needs we have in our church right now. There's a lot of things. I'd say hospitality. I'd say hospitality. We need to have an opportunity to create, to build relationships, to build a connection. We've got new people coming in. And you know what the biggest thing we've got to do is connect. Invite them into our home and say, listen, I want to get to know you. I want to know your story. I want to know how I could be praying for you. I want to love you deeply. And it happens over the table. Or you have the opportunity in your home to have folks from all walks of life to your table. New folks and to build that connection. Listen, if you've got this gift of hospitality and you're saying, man, how do I fit into the church? And come talk to me and Jacob. We've got some ideas for you. Because we see this as being a need for our church to continue to grow and take next steps. We've got to excel at this idea of connecting and hospitality and building relationships and making people feel welcomed. Listen, if you've got that gift, and praise God, we need you here. We need you to practice that gift right here. So first thing, living in the meantime, is to be alert, to be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Number two is to love one another deeply. Number three is to offer hospitality without complaining. And number four is to use your God-given gifts to serve others. It says in verse 10, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves for the strength that God supplies. Here's what you do it for. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. A couple things within there. Every one of us have received spiritual gifts. We received a gift, something that we're good at, something that we have a, a passion to. Now, you may not have a ton of gifts. You may not have the gift that you wish, but every one of us, we have gifts according to the giving from God. And Peter doesn't give us an exhaustive list of those gifts. He says, oh, I'm going to give you two broad categories. If you want to read more about the spiritual gifts, they can be found in Romans chapter 12 and 1 Corinthians chapter 12, among other places. But he takes the gifts and he's going to lump them into two categories. He's going to say the gift of speaking. This doesn't just mean preaching. This means if you have the gift of encouragement, you have the gift of wisdom, you have the gift of counsel, you have the gift of teaching, you have a gift and Peter says, use it as though you are teaching from the, speaking from the authority of God. He says, the second group of gifts is serving. These are people who give themselves to ensure that everything runs smoothly. That people are connected, that things are in order. He says, listen, these are the, the, the broad categories of gifts. He says, every one of you have been given a gift, and here's the reason why. Because you are to serve other people. Those gifts that God has given you, those are tools to be used for the benefit of one another. And as Christians, we are, 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 are called to faithful stewarding, faithful administration of God's grace that he's given to us. You understand that? The gift that you've been given, God has given it to you, and you are supposed to faithfully steward it. 
administer it, use it for God's glory to love the people around us. In fact, people oftentimes will say, you know, I'm done with the church. The church has all those problems, and I'm just, I'm not going to do church anymore. Listen, there's no individual Christianity in the entire New Testament. When you're reading through the Bible, reading through the New Testament, there's nowhere that would show us that you could be an individual Christian without the church. Because how are you supposed to use your gift to serve one another if you don't have a group of, of people to serve? And listen, the only way that the body of Christ here at Restoration Church, the only way we will ever do anything for God is a result of taking up the grace of God that he's given to us in the, in the form of gifts and seeking to serve one another. Are you using your gifts in an identifiable way to advance the kingdom of God? As you're looking at the places God has placed you, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, uh, in, in your school, are you using your gifts in the church? Are you using your gifts to advance the kingdom of God? So I'm not saying if you're a stay-at-home mom, that you've got to go and have a soup kitchen in your home. But somewhere, something. Are you using the skill that God has given you to advance the kingdom of God? Listen, you say, well, I don't know what my gift is. Like, I don't know how God is. Why? I don't know what my gift is. Listen, if you don't know what your gift is, you know what you do? You just start serving. You just plug in. And guess what you're going to find? You do whatever you can. You're going to say, man, man, I really wasn't very good at this. Man, I really like this. In fact, probably one of the reasons why I'm a teacher and why I'm a preacher today is because I started teaching a little kid Sunday school class. Fourth and fifth grade boys. We had a bus ministry at our church, and these little kids came in and had a chance to teach them and realized, man, I love teaching. I have this ability to do so. You don't know what your gift is? Find a place to serve. We'll help you find some different things to whet your appetite. Jacob, that's what he loves doing. He loves helping people serve. Just start serving, and you'll find what God has, has gifted you in. I'm going to bring this whole thing to a close. In light of the fact that we are living in the end times, the end, the, the, end of t- the end times is at hand. It's near. Peter would say, when we live in view of Christ's return, when we live in view of Christ's return, that the end of all things is near, that the worries and the stress and the anxiety for the things of this world, man, they don't rule you anymore. Because when you live in view of Christ's return, you begin to invest your life for God's kingdom. You begin to invest your life in things that matter. And this isn't to say you're going to go and be a a full-time pastor or a missionary someplace, but you look in your sphere of influence and say, how can God use my life for the kingdom of God? And you know what happens when we live like this? Just picture in your mind what would happen and what kind of impact we would have on the world around us if we lived like this. If we were alert and sober so we can pray. If we loved each other deeply. If we offered hospitality without complaining. If we used our gifts to serve one another. Imagine what kind of impact we could have on the world around us. And I want to clarify, these are not programs of the church. 
These are not things that we're going to say, here's how you do hospitality. No, this is something you figure out and say, I'm going to put this into practice. You choose to, to live out biblical principles in your life. Imagine the impact that we can have on the people around us. I look and I say, man, we've got a great church. We've got a church, we've got uh, two staff members. We've got four elders who are much more qualified than I am. And I look and I say, man, we've got 125 ministers doing the work of the ministry, of loving people around them, of showing them hospitality, of using their gifts to serve one another. See, when the church is structured that way, there's more growth. There's more effectiveness. There's more ministry. There's more lives changed. 